and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, syndicated on your radio stations and in your podcast. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, coming to you today from sunny Spain on location, and I'm joined by my colleague David Clement in Toronto. David, how goes it? Oof. Uh, I feel like another week, another heavy... Uh... Another heavy week in regards to what's going on in the world, but uh, all things considered, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. I'm not enjoying the um, sun-bathed landscapes of Spain, but uh, the snow is slowly disappearing here, which is nice. Very true. Yeah. I mean, um, I was very surprised. Obviously, I had never been to Valencia before, but uh, this is part of the Catalonia uh, region, so... In the news the last couple of years, uh, especially considering that, you know, their kind of uh, their premier or governor uh, was arrested by the authorities after being chased uh, for many years because he, quote, held an illegal referendum. Uh, So we all remember that. That's uh, Carlos Puigdemont, uh, who he actually got out of the arrest warrant by getting himself elected to the European Parliament, (laughs) which is like a strange immunity (laughs) deal. Uh, But eventually, uh, I think Belgium uh, caved in. Uh, but, yeah, it's a wonderful place. Uh, there are oranges on the trees when you walk down the street. Beautiful. Uh, and the prices here, it's like inflation never happened. Uh, I mean, that's nice. That's nice. Gas is getting uncomfortably high. Um, uncomfortably So what's it, what's it out in your backyard right now? What's the uh, the gasoline at Canadian dollar per liter? What are we looking uh, at? Like 185 190 And out west in Vancouver area, it's north of $2 a liter. Which is the highest it has ever been, I think, ever. Um, and so, yeah, that's putting a huge strain on uh, on people who drive. Um, I think it's especially problematic for people who are middle or lower income who have to drive to work wherever they work. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a pretty substantial increase in costs just to get to the place where you earn money. Um but we have seen some good news out of Alberta. Premier Kenny announcing they're going to chop off, I think, thirteen cents worth of the province's gas tax, um, which is much needed. Uh, ho- hopefully, to provide some relief for those in Alberta. Um, I wish other governments would look at the same, just because these are really like unprecedented times in terms of gas prices, and it could get worse. And so, any type of relief like that would be uh, very much appreciated, especially as we weather the storm in regards to whatever the impact is um, from this conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, and this is, um, it's real. You know, this is uh, this is barbarity that we're seeing before our eyes, and there's a lot of uh, people sitting in armchairs uh, telling us all kinds of things, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is real people and real lives. Uh, lives that are being impacted, you know, everywhere, not just directly there. I mean, friends and family. You know, I, I, I did not want to bring this up as as a point, but I'm seeing this a lot from sort of the uh, intelligentsia left uh, in the U.S. and Canada of saying like, well, we didn't care when it was Yemen and all these other countries, and you know, I would say I agree. However, the reason that people are more tuned in for this is because this is an outright invasion by an army a b ukraine you know was part of the austrian empire is very close to europe there are a lot of 
people who've immigrated and moved from Ukraine to Canada and throughout the U.S. Yeah, there's over uh, a million a- Canadian Ukrainians. Um, so naturally, the level of concern is heightened given the fact that the largest diaspora of Ukrainians in the world outside of Ukraine and Russia is in Canada. Um, and anyone who's who's in Europe, you know, has either traveled there or knows someone who's there or did an exchange program with someone who uh, was from Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of companies throughout Western Europe that have been hiring a lot of Ukrainians in the last yep. couple of years just because they've had a lot of tech skills, good education. So there's, you know, they're very integrated in the European continent. And yeah, that matters. I mean, and let's even evaluate that argument as if it were true. That doesn't mean that our level of care on this issue is wrong. It just means that we need to be better on other instances. And I know that that critique doesn't particularly apply to me or necessarily you, because we've long talked about the need to uh, do a better job resettling refugees who are fleeing conflict. Um, I had spoken out pretty loudly in regards to what we should done, what we should have done for for those fleeing Afghanistan when the Taliban retook the country, for those fleeing Syria and everything going on there. I mean, I have to say that Poland has provided a very good compassionate model for what this should look like. Um, they've opened their doors. They've done so in a way where they don't have refugee camps per, per se. People are just housing refugees en masse, which is incredibly compassionate um they have access to social services they their kids can go to school in poland um it really is with open arms um the only caveat to it is it's like reviewed after 18 months but as we've learned talking to um some of our friends uh or or their family in ukraine the idea is that they want to go back um when they can um, so Poland just absolutely stepping up in regards to what they're doing. And I think that that would be a, 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 an approach that we should probably apply to most of these humanitarian uh, crises. Um, but I don't think that that argument from whomever is making it somehow invalidates the level of concern that Canadians or Americans have about what Ukrainians are going through right now. Yeah, and for Poland, I mean, if, if anyone knows anything about Poland, I mean, it's there's something like one percent are foreign-born who live there. It's not yes. a not usually the most accommodating uh, for immigration, and and in past years, most of the immigration that was happening with was immigration with an E. A lot yeah. of Poles going to the UK, going yep. to Germany, and, and throughout Europe. Um, but yeah, definitely change. So yeah, uh, we, we covered it a lot the last two weeks here on Consumer Choice Radio, so you guys can go back and listen to those episodes mm-hmm. over there on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. Um, obviously, our colleagues are doing a lot of media on this as well, doing TV yes. interviews, radio interviews, uh, articles. So our uh, colleague, Maria Chaplia, who's been on this program before, um, she's from Ukraine, obviously, and has been doing a lot of things on the ground in Poland, um, getting her family out and you know arranging all kinds of accommodations for people fleeing and doing a great job. So we'll point you guys over to some of those links in our show notes. Um, just to, to remind you, our program going out on the air. And uh, David, very soon we will have some big news when it comes to our radio program. And yes, hopefully we'll we be will. reaching many more ears uh, in the weeks to come. So yes. A lot to come. 
Now, we, before we go to our next segment, you know, there's a couple of things we have to talk about that are happening. We've been very Canada heavy the last few weeks just mm-hmm. because there's been way too much going on. Yeah. Uh, but in the U.S., uh, all eyes on what's happening in the Capitol and in D.C. There's this continuing resolution. Basically, the government runs out of money by the end of the week. Uh, so if you guys are listening by, uh, you know, Saturday on the radio, hopefully things have been resolved. But basically, in putting together a resolution to cobble together the money, uh, there have been a lot of provisions added into some of the bills. Yes. And one of them pertains to synthetic nicotine. Meaning yes. nicotine not derived from tobacco, as is uh, sort of the traditional recipe that you would have for your vaping devices. Uh, this is sort of a backdoor way to try to make sure that all of these synthetic vape devices that you might see at your local convenience store or gas station, um, they are not at the moment regulated by the FDA, unlike other uh, nicotine vape juices and liquids that are and have to go through this very convoluted Byzantine process. And uh, this is just coming up with no debate. Uh, there's no, you know, separate bill. It's just thrown in there with uh, funding the government. So yeah, this I, is something that we're, we've are we been fighting out against, putting out press releases, trying to reach out to as many people as possible. And it's, a, it's just a terrible way to do business. It's a terrible way to do democracy, to just throw stuff in under these omnibus bills. Yeah, I really don't like this process. It should just be limited to spending. Um. Like, are we confirming to fund X dollars to spend X programs? Once you get outside of that, it gets very complicated. I know that there's some pushback from Republicans on additional COVID spending, and the Democrats who've broken with the party have wanted that stripped out, and it looks like it will be stripped out, and that's probably a good thing because I think most of that spending is probably unnecessary at this point. Um but yeah, it's it's just a really bad way to do government policy because it it's almost like an ultimatum. It's like support all of these weird niche policies that could be completely void of any um, justification to support it or have the government shut down. And it's like, okay, you're going to really hold us hostage here on a bunch of really strange niche um, issues or regulatory policies that will then get lumped in without debate when they're worthy of their own debate in separate policy initiatives on their own. Yeah, and I think particularly for this, this is a a law that would go into place that would basically wipe off thousands of products from our shelves overnight. And, you know, we're not talking about, you know, people going out and drinking, (laughs) I don't know, motor oil or something that people are selling and calling juice you know this is something that actually saves lives because people stop smoking people are able to get the same amount of nicotine from these products and you know we should realize that the fda the food and drug administration has only ever had uh, oversight over this kind of sector since 2009 and it's supposed to be on tobacco and tobacco alone They've played loose uh, and hard with the facts here, and they've thrown in vaping in there. And now they're trying to throw in synthetic nicotine, which actually has zero to do with tobacco, nothing. There's zero ingredients related to it, but that's what they're trying to do. Uh, This is something that obviously is is grinding our gears a good amount. It's, uh, you know, something that we're very passionate about here at Consumer Choice Center, uh, where David and I work day in and day out, uh, putting out press releases, writing articles, putting together campaigns. 
Uh, yeah, there's been a lot to focus on <laughs> the last couple of weeks, David. You know, despite everything that's happening, uh, there are still laws that are being passed. There's still restrictions in place that make it so that you can't get the products that you want. And uh, it continues on. Doesn't doesn't matter if it's Uber. Doesn't matter if it's your favorite vape device or, you know, just cheap um non-alcoholic beer that's taxed you know moderately you know there's all these all these things are always popular. yeah yeah exactly exactly it's uh it, there it, it it's it's almost like while the um while the world is focused on ukraine there are all of these bad policies that are still progressing and uh it's probably i think it would probably be best to just take a deep breath here and Maybe not do some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah, not. There's, you know, there's, there's some positive thing. We'll keep it on the American beat, and then we'll uh, preview our guest uh, who's coming up. But basically, the, the next thing is there's an executive order by Joe Biden on cryptocurrencies. Yes. Uh, this is an executive order on what he calls the digital assets, uh, which overall actually was not that bad. Um, I think it's very similar, in fact, to what... Uh, the Michelle Remper is her name. Michelle Rempel Garner, yeah. Rempel Garner, yeah. You gotta yeah. do all these marriage uh, things. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, sort of her bill that was, you know, just saying, hey, we need to have, you know, study. We need to be sure that there's a good framework. That's essentially what Joe Biden is looking at. You know, he discussed things like uh, cryptocurrency mining, uh, the ability to have, you know, rapid payments. No mention of taxation. Uh, but then also a lot of it was actually a good amount about technological neutrality, which I really appreciated. But then he brought up the uh, digital central bank currencies, which a lot of people have problems with. Yeah, I think including ourselves, that it does not sound like a, a fun project. No, no, it's um, the crypto space is so important because there's obviously a lot of tension about it. You and I have, have focused on this. We had an op-ed published in the Hamilton Spectator on it, just on what the government needs to protect and do and not do. Um, and so I, there are a lot of concerns about the direction of where this goes. Um, and then you add in digital dollar and what that could mean for government control and all of that jazz. And um very complicated time in the crypto digital space, um, but it does seem like things are moving slowly in the right direction. I hope I don't. I hope we don't have a future episode where I have to dunk on myself for saying that. <laughs> no, no, no. You're worried. All right, uh, we got much more to come here at Consumer Tourist Radio. Stay tuned. Interview with Professor Jason Lusk of Purdue. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, syndicated on the radio uh, and right there on your podcast app. So we're speaking with Professor Jason Lusk. He is the Distinguished Professor and Head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. Uh, you can find his website and blog where he is very active over there on jasonlusk.com, J-A-Y-S-O-N, Lusk, and also on Twitter under the same name. So, Professor Lusk, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, happy to chat. So the couple of things that we wanted to talk to you about, obviously, um, food inflation is big on the mind. I know you've been doing a little bit of work there. Uh, there's a lot of questions about food supplies internationally with everything that we see happening uh, with Ukraine and all of the rest. Um, if you could, just sort of what's, uh, what's the main cause right now, what we're seeing with food inflation, and, and really how are consumers feeling about it? Well, there's not a single cause, but, but many causes that are coming together to contribute 
to the inflation that we're seeing. I kind of think of three interrelated buckets of drivers of the food price increases we're seeing. One is just general macroeconomic environment. So there's just a lot more money in the economy. If you look at, at just money supply, the amount of money that's sloshing around in the economy, that increased sharply at the end of the pan, at, at the onset mm-hmm. of the pandemic, largely in response to many of the government policies that um, you know aimed to, to shore up employment and consumer household budgets. But you know, when you cannot when you can't get out and travel or go out and eat, that money tends to flow into people's bank accounts. And indeed, you could see at an aggregate level at least a big increase in savings rates. So part of what's going on is just, you know, there's there's more money, the same amount of goods. And so that's just a classic definition of inflation. The, the value of each dollar falls when there's more dollars floating around. And so it takes more dollars to buy to buy stuff. So that's one answer, but that that's not unique to food. That's sort of a broad uh, explanation for price rises we've seen across the economy. The piece that it sort of helps dovetail a bit into food is that that's helps spikes, you know, generate extra demand. So consumers wanting more, willing to pay for more. You see that, you know, right now in cars and used cars, for example, but it's also, we're, we're seeing it in food. Fit, spending on food, both food at home and food away from home is both up quite a bit since the uh, start of the pandemic, even though there were some initial disruptions. Um, and so people are just, you know, they're just buying more food, willing to spend more on food, less price sensitive than they were uh, previously. And I think that's partly related to these income stories that I've mentioned before. Uh, the other part of the demand picture is international demand. So particularly for, for meat products. So the meat, meat prices have been, um, the increases in meat price explain a big chunk of the increase in overall food prices. And some of that's being driven by really strong demand from some of our international trading partners. So the U.S. is a net exporter of agricultural products and uh, particularly countries like China, um, there was a surge in in buying of say U.S. beef, which pulled up prices here at home. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, there's all the cost and supply side factors that that come in. And and some of that's labor related. Wages are up. Um, Part of that's uh, uh, related to this great resignation. So people are the food processors, food manufacturers, food distributors having a hard time finding enough employees. They've been increasing wages to try to get employees to show up. And those wages get reflected in the, in the food prices we see. Uh, in addition to the wages, just cost of ingredients. So agricultural commodity prices have been really uh, strong throughout the course of the last year. Some of that's due to weather issues. Some of it here more recently is due to events uh, around the world in UK, Ukraine and Russia. Um, and then, you know, fuel transportation has made, um, you know, transport, the, the increased fuel, fuel costs have made transportation more expensive. But even before the, the Ukraine situation, there was uh, some real backlogs in, in trucking. And I think across the board, talking to people in food processing and manufacturing, uh, they've had a hard time getting just getting people to show up to pick up loads and take them from one place to another. So that's been a real challenge. So, you know, again, to kind of recap, there's not a, a single explanation, but rather a mm-hmm. co- combination of, of forces have come together to cause increase, rate, increases in food prices at a rate that we really haven't seen since the late 70s and early 80s. So I have a, a follow-up question for you on that because it's something that we've seen raised is, is herbicides, herbicide shortages or pushes to limit their use. Um, 
What does that mean in practice for farmers? How important are herbicides for farmers? Will that um, put additional pressure upwards on pricing? Um, the answer is yes. So I think one, one thing to keep in mind is I think some people get a little uneasy when they think about herbicides being used in agriculture. Um, you know, are they safe? Uh, whatnot. Uh, maybe a view that I see articles sometimes that farmers are, you know, dousing their fields with uh, herbicides. Um, this is a, this is a cost for farmers. That's an expensive mm -hmm. input, and so farmers don't want to use herbicides unless they they provide a benefit to them. So there are a couple of benefits they provide. One is it increases the yields, so they can produce more 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 food, more crop on a given amount of land. Um, and that increase in production, that increase in yield is, is more than enough to offset the cost of that fertilizer. Otherwise, they would do it. One of the other things, and this is maybe a bit counterintuitive for some folks, it does have some environmental benefits. So low-till and no-till farming technologies means that, you know, you're not running a, a tractor over the field and disturbing the soil, which can result in soil runoff and other things. Those practices become more... Um, become easier for farmers to adopt those no-till practices if they have access to certain herbicides that can control weeds. Because that's the reason the farmers are plowing those fields often is to control weeds. And if they can control mm. weeds in other ways, then it enables them to adopt these, these production practices that do have some environmental benefits. And you're right. So there, there have been some, some significant price increases in a lot of agricultural inputs, herbicides included. One of the big controversies these days uh, is around the use of uh, glyphosate, which is, you know, the brand name that people know of is probably Roundup. There have been some mm -hmm. lawsuits. Some food companies have, have made pledges to move away from that. Um, you know, I guess all good, except the question is, what are farmers going to use instead? Because mm -hmm. uh, it's not like they're not, not going to use a herbicide. So if they're not going to use uh, Roundup, what, what's the alternative? And unfortunately, I think many times the alternatives are either less effective or, or slightly higher levels of toxicity. I mean, all these have to be approved by the EPA and USDA to begin with, so that they're, they're safe for human consumption. But um, glyphosate is a class of, of herbicides that you know, was really much safer than many of the ones that, that came before them. So um, you know, I understand people's concerns. I think we always wanna evaluate the risks, but I think some of the, the paranoia around um, that particular herbicide didn't consider what the alternatives were. <laughs> like what's going to yeah, come of in course. if you don't use that one instead? Yeah, and I think um, I mean one one thing that we've often seen in our work is that we're going against uh, many different non-governmental organizations, nonprofits that are putting up a lot of huff and puff about many of these issues, and particularly around herbicides, around pesticides. We've just seen that there's little to no connection to reality of how it actually works for farmers. And unfortunately, a lot of misinformation. And like you just said, what are kind of any alternatives uh, that, that would exist? Because one thing that we're very bullish on is, is technological progress and things getting better, more tools available for farmers. And all of that helps consumers because it helps prices go down. It helps us to have more adequate supplies, more yields, all of the rest. You know, if, if we had like a sort of a world without these what would that look like? And would there be any tools? You know, is this something to where we can use masses of ladybugs or anything like this? Or is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, I work at a, a agricultural research university, so a big fan of investments in science and technology, and, and but more broadly, just entrepreneurship and innovation in the food and ag space. 
you know, we, we have big, big food problems. I don't disagree with that at all. You know, climate change, I already mentioned soil erosion, sometimes nitrogen and water. Um, and so the question really is how, how are we gonna make headway dealing with those problems? And I think imagining some utopia where there are no insects or no weeds is not particularly helpful or, or magical thinking that of course, we, uh, you know, that there are just production practices out there that are, you know, easy to adopt and that are costless to adopt for consumers that they control those problems. There's just no simple solution. So I, I do think about trying to invest in that science and innovation as a way to deal with those. You mentioned ladybugs. Yeah, actually, there, there's a whole active area of research around integrated pest management, trying to use, you know, quote, quote unquote, natural, even though nothing really all that natural about it, but, um, you know, competitive insects to control some of those. GMOs uh, was a big buzzword that you know does create mm-hmm. a lot of controversy sometimes. But but you know a GMO is not a single thing; it's just a tool. Um, yep, it can be used for a variety of different things. One of the ways in which it's used is to um, you know enable certain plants to produce its own pesticide. So um, BT corn BT refers to uh, a compound that that you know, when, a, when corn is given the genes to produce it, it can, it can produce this BT and, and it, that, that you know, protects that corn against certain insects that want to eat it. Incidentally, I think you know, one thing that might be useful to know, BT is an, is an organic compound. It's, approved, it's an a, approved pesticide in organic production, but somehow people get really upset about it when you know, the plants producing itself versus when a farmer's just spraying it on the field, but it's the same chemical compound has the same effect. Actually, it's not toxic to humans, but it is toxic to uh, you know, certain kinds of bugs that want to eat, mm-hmm. eat those plants. So that's an example of, of a kind of innovation to control for uh, insects in a way that actually has significantly reduced insecticide applications. Uh, so on the question of yields, because I think it's important always to frame what this looks like in terms of the alternative. Um, our colleague Bill Wirtz has done some work on this, and he's described some of the pressures from NGOs as essentially pushing for what would be a giant step backwards in terms of yields. But I'm curious if you could walk our listeners through what exactly some of that looks like in terms of the reduction in yields for basic crops if we were to adopt some of these anti-GMO policies or maybe cave to some of what I would view as the hysteria over herbicides and things like that. Yeah. I think one way to get a sense of the magnitudes here, you know, we could talk about how many bushels per acre, but I don't think people have a good sense of what that means. Sure. One one way to think about it is is if we backed up, you know, about 40 years or so and said, did a little thought experiment, like, let's imagine we want to enjoy the amount of corn, let's say that we actually produced and enjoyed last year, but we wanted to do that using, you know, 1950s or 1960s yield, mm-hmm. how many more acres of corn would we need to plant? And the answer is we need to like double or triple the amount of acreage, you know, planted to corn. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've done those same, you could do the similar thought experiments in all, all facets of agriculture with, uh, you know, you know, dairy or cattle or, or chickens. I mean, you get similar kinds of answers that you, you know, you we would need in the case of chickens if we went back to the to yield like the you know, amount of, amount of pounds per bird if we went back even to the 1980s we'd need a, a billion more chickens to meet the the current demand that we have there so you think about what that means you know doubling the acreage of corn or having a billion more chickens and all the environmental 
demands that would create for the water, for the for the land, for the pesticides, you know, pesticides for the uh, fertilizer, and those things we're able to save. Like we don't need those anymore because we found ways to be more productive, to produce more corn from each acre, to get each animal to put on a little more weight a little faster. Uh, is improved genetics. Um, in the case of animals, it's improved diets, improved housing. In the case of plants, um, it's also you know genetics, but also management practices and the access to certain herbicides and otherwise. It, all those innovations, I think, come together to really produce a a, a food world that is is actually quite uh, contrary to most people's perceptions of it. We eat better, we eat more, we eat more affordably than we ever have. Not only in uh, in comparison to other parts of the world, but in comparison to human history. Food has never really been more abundant and more affordable than it has been today. And I think that's in large part thanks to the fact that we we have messed with nature. We didn't just take the world the way it was. We found uh, ways to improve upon it. And I think we're a lot better off for it. We certainly could not support the, the, the population size that we have today with the kind of agricultural practices that, that were in use in the 1940s and 50s. That's probably one of the most well-rounded and articulate defenses of innovation in agriculture that I've heard. So we definitely want to have you on again, if we can. Uh, Professor Lusk, uh, pleasure talking to you. Uh, hopefully we can point uh, some of our listeners over to your website and your research. And uh, yeah, continue with, uh, with all the great stuff. This is a very good knowledge, I think, for a lot of people. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Just uh, coming up right now in this segment, we're recapping a bit the interview that we just had with Professor Jason Lusk of Purdue University, uh, your go-to guy on anything agriculture, economics. Uh, David, a lot of that stuff is is interesting because it's stuff that we talk about and discuss a good amount of times, and it's, it's actually good to know that there's some academic rigor mm-hmm. behind some of the arguments that we've made in the past. So I love that. Yeah, and just the, the idea that growing more does not mean that uh, that that is worse for the environment, because we see that so much um, from the doom and gloom crowd who think that we're over-consuming and all of this jazz, and it's like, well, actually, we because of these technologies, we do a exponentially better job of protecting the environment in the process and i mean just think of the land when he quoted whatever the number it was for the amount of corn we would have to grow under those old um farming practices it's like well how many how many forests or how much land would you have to clear how much green space would you have to plow um in order to be able to do that so it's uh it is uh very uh it's refreshing it's refreshing to yeah to have someone what i what i also one thing i can't stand is i always hear this is and it's a big thing in culture right not necessarily in you know political uh parlance or political rhetoric though you can probably say that too Uh, but the idea that the earth is ruined it's done it's cooked and our kids will have absolutely nothing and I find that these people just don't live in a particular reality because they're not looking at the studies that we have. They're not looking at 
our average wealth. The fact that we actually have more forests and more trees now in many areas, that's a very uncomfortable statistic for a lot of people. But it's it's true, and that's because there are actual economic incentives to planting new trees and forests. It doesn't just all get cut down so that we can have rocking chairs. Yeah. You know, there's actually <laughs> some good economics there that, that, that make this all the worthwhile. Exactly. So I, very good to hear from our great professor on that. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. And uh, since we're, you know, going back to uh, some of the topics that we mentioned in the first segment, uh, obviously we're recording this uh, throughout the week. And we've already have an update, David, on the uh, synthetic nicotine that we discussed. Uh, it turns out that. Uh, our senators and congressmen in the United States, they uh, put this uh, effective ban on synthetic nicotine already into the large omnibus bill. So essentially, as soon as Joe Biden whips out his pen and signs that it, it's a done deal, so that will be the end of various synthetic vape uh, products, essentially, because they only have about two months to try to do thousands of pages of paperwork. Uh, so it's just another way for the bureaucratic boot to be stamped on uh, innovative enterprises that are trying to solve problems like getting people to stop smoking and use vaping products. So chapeau to you in Congress for pushing this through. Yeah, yeah, not not uh, not good. Not good. Um, not good. Not good. True. We'll try to get some context uh, next week from, from some of our guests. There's a couple people we're looking at to have, to have on to discuss because I think that is something that will impact a lot of people, and uh, definitely it's one of the larger consumer choice themes that we have on this program. Um, so again, tune in for that, and uh, as always, check out our YouTube page. I don't always uh, push that enough, uh, but we do have all of the interviews that we do. Uh, you can see the beautiful faces of our guests, not ours, but uh, our guests. Exactly, yes. yes. So David, what else has been happening in the news, uh, consumer choice stuff? I know there's a uh, there's a lot of sanctions flying around. There's a lot of uh, propaganda in the airwaves, uh, a lot of stuff happening online. I'm just wondering where your head is these days. Well, yeah, it looks like Russia is going to ban Facebook and Instagram, and I think that would mean WhatsApp as well. And I saw someone tweet out that like 70% of messaging traffic in Russia is done via WhatsApp. Um, so that's a pretty, pretty huge... Um, huge like consequence for for ordinary so aside Russians. from that why do you think it is that there aren't more canadians or americans i think it's pretty cool that use whatsapp on the regular or do you think people do or do they just people mostly just do text like regular sms or iMessage, right yeah i guess so yeah i would say probably that i i think it's just because I mean, I'm assuming. I mean, data availability is higher in Canada and the U.S. maybe than it is in Russia, and that's why. Oh, you gotta you, you gotta pay for it though. Uh, yeah, that's true. Like, uh, and service is probably better, like across different areas. I'm, but I'm completely guessing. I have no idea. Um, My theory always was, because I, I noticed this, like, once I, I came to Europe and started traveling around, like, everybody had WhatsApp, mm -hmm. and everybody in, like, uh, Latin American countries, everyone's got WhatsApp, but you go back to the U.S., and it's like, hey, man, install WhatsApp last and you're like, oh, yeah. I don't want to install WhatsApp, I don't want another app. It's like, well, how do you chat with people, like, text? Yeah. All right. 
Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not that the platform is great. It's just, and, and you know, it's always going to be different in different areas. And I saw that in Russia, mm-hmm. you know, the the banning of, of these services, which I think is more a symbolic thing. Uh, because we do know that a lot of Russians are using these alternative services, you know, this VK, and they use things like Viber and Telegram and all the rest. But uh, still, that's that's not good. It's not good to see bans of any products or services. And I don't know about your email inbox, David, but it feels a bit uncomfortable. This is where I'm, I'm going into mm-hmm. skittish territory Ooh. here. feels a bit uncomfortable to have emails from every service that I use basically write me and tell me that they're suspending all service to Russian citizens. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I don't like some of it. Um, basically, the way in which I view this is if whatever you're ceasing to do aids the Russian war machine, then I get it whether it's like a business and through taxes or whatnot. But if it doesn't really, then I'm not sure there's any value. Like we're seeing all sorts of crazy stuff where like people are dropping concert pianists from symphonies and things like that because they're Russian. I don't know what their personal views are. Um, I would assume they're probably not like diehard Putin fans. Um and it's like, I don't think that that's particularly effective. Um, if it's going to cut money available to the war machine, then that's probably good. I can understand why that would be desired. But um, yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're, we're dipping our toes into failing to distinguish between the Russian people and the Russian government. And that's really sad. I don't, I mean... How many how many millions and millions of Russians do not like Putin, did not vote for him in whatever we want to call their election? And it's like these people are also getting hit with. Yeah, I saw this for a, it's a Belarusian guy because Belarus is being thrown in this into a lot. A yes. Lot. And, and the guy was making the point like, uh, hello, uh, if you guys remember like two years ago, you know, we had protests here. Where we were trying to topple the government. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have the same type. Like, the, like we did the our best. We actually won the election. Mm-hmm. She had to leave the country and be in exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are you? Penal- we hate this government, too. <laughs> uh, and another thing, I'm again, I'm getting into skittish territory here. But I seem to th- remember that a lot of more political science and economic research throughout the years told us that broad-scale sanctions like this don't necessarily always achieve their aims, and a lot of people get hurt in the process. Uh, I know that there has been extreme targeting of these sanctions, you know, particular oligarchs mm-hmm. having their their yachts seized or their accounts frozen or something, but, you know, this is going to impact a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I, I just don't... You don't want to be in a situation where you do this and then it just turns ordinary Russians against the West and liberal de- democratic countries, you know, even more. Mm-hmm. I, I, It's such a tricky thing, but I feel as if we're not really having the cost-benefit argument or debate in public necessarily. We're just kind of going all in. Well, and it depends on what the goal is, right? Is the goal to cut off funding so that Putin can't um can't like it's it's more difficult to fund 
the war or is it regime change? It's like that one's a little more complicated for me because that's like I I don't know if that's really what's going to happen here. Um I mean it would be nice if it did, but what does that realistically look like? You're you're talking about um like how, what does it look like for the Russian gov- Russian government to be overthrown? Um or does this is it used and propagandized by Putin to further resentment and entrench his support as if he's defending them against the evil sanctions of of the rest of the world I don't know I mean that one I'm not sure um, and I think that's why I think that's why it's hard to it's hard to really understand what it's like for your average ordinary Ukrainian. Uh, because many, most of them, if not all of them, also speak Russian or have some proficiency. So they're able to also, you know, if they're able to access websites, they're able to see what the Russian news is saying about what's happening in Ukraine. And that has to be so hard. It, it would be like if there was a war between the UK and the US and you're reading the British press and it was just coming up with all these lies and, you know, these things that made no sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of Kentucky is just Nazis, so we need to go invade. Yeah. It would be something like this. Yeah, exa- Yeah, I don't... Sorry, Kentucky. Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to throw you The poor place. people of Kentucky. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, so much of the discourse on that side is just... It's, it, it's, it's gotten to the point... I, I hope we can get into some of that maybe with an expert at a, in a later episode where we dive into like the source of some of these strange talking points and where they're who's perpetuating them and all of that jazz but it's so it's very difficult to weigh in on a lot of this just because there's so much misinformation or disinformation out there it's just it's ex- it's exhausting to try and get through so I have one that I would recommend to you if you would like to spot some propaganda. Ooh, okay. Uh, so there's a Twitter channel. Uh, I'm also in the Telegram group because Telegram is where it all happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's called ASB Military News Okay. on Twitter. It's essentially, in English, the Russian military propaganda channel. Interesting. Okay. So that's it's, how you it's see... It's very crazy to read. Yes. Hmm. I will I will check that out. I mean there I mean there's so much like Lavrov the other day being like, Yeah, we're not gonna attack anybody else. We didn't attack Ukraine. And it's like, wait a second, what? <laughs> and it's funny for Lavrov, you know, I this is one thing because I always view this as all of these people are yes, they're speaking to their own citizens and to the citizens of Ukraine or Russia, but they're all very fluent in English and they know the entire world is watching. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's to their advantage to stick to their native language so that if you hear, you know, Lav- Lavrov actually is, su- I mean, he speaks like with a British accent. Yeah. This guy's got an amazing English yeah. accent. But when you just hear the translator, so it doesn't sound, it's like with Ahmadinejad, the Iranian mm-hmm. guy, with like being like, oh, we're going to do this to Israel, all this and that. And you just hear some puny guy's voice who's the translator. <laughs> it's like, oh, it doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, actuality, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's not bad. That's why the, the subtitles at least help. Um, but this stuff is, I don't know. It's, uh, we're, we're, it's in a different age because there is, you know, social media posts. And even Zelensky's team are putting together very good, you know, emotive videos. It's, um, it's really changing things, David. And I hope for 
Next week, we have some more positive news uh, that we can weigh in on. There's a lot of consumer choice topics Mm -hmm. that obviously will be impacted by this, not just prices going up. Uh, I know that uh, in Vienna right now, I think we just hit two euros per liter. Uh, So take your two euros, convert it to Canadian, you can see uh, that's what we're doing. So yeah, we uh, we look forward to that, and we obviously uh, would like to thank uh, the good old profe- uh, Professor Jason Lusk uh, for his contributions to our program, and uh, we'll put that video up on the YouTubes so you guys can check that out. Uh, but yeah, David, I think that, that does it for me this week. Yeah, yeah, until next week, hopefully we have some uh, some great guests to announce, and thank you for, for joining us on another episode of Consumer Choice Radio. Consumer Choice Radio.